Welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. On the 15th of February 2020, the English television presenter and host of the popular reality TV show Love Island, Caroline Flack, took her own life. She was 41. In the months before her death, she had been subjected to sustained and vituperative criticism from the British tabloid press, much of which centred around charges pressed against her by the Crown Prosecution Service for an alleged assault on her partner. In this episode, I'm joined by my regular co-host Paul Ragg and by Brian Cathcart, Professor of Journalism at Kingston University and one of the founding members of the campaign group Hacked Off, for a discussion about the state of press regulation in the UK. It's a discussion that is particular prescience right now in the wake of this latest tragedy. Now, the catalyst for our discussion today, obviously, uh, has been the tragic and untimely death of Caroline Flack, which happened uh, in the last week. Um, But it raises matters that are clearly of broader relevance when it comes to regulation of uh, the media and the future for media regulation, particularly of our tabloid press in this country. Um, And I'm delighted to have you both on um, to talk about the future of regulation. But um, perhaps, Paul, you could start just by giving us an overview of what issues particularly are raised by uh, Caroline Flack's death and what led up to it and any other um, relevant incidents. Yeah, so... As we as we know, as media law um, uh, commentators, listeners, uh, people interested in media law, uh, the law is very good at protecting uh, informational privacy. It's also uh, good at protecting uh, reputational rights. It's less good at protecting against uh, what we might call physical privacy, and especially the uh, news gathering methods that are used by the press, uh, particularly where that uh, results in harassment uh, and also intrusion into uh, shock or grief. And so um, there are uh, several issues that arise uh, with the Caroline Flack story, but not only the Caroline Flack story, other stories we've seen uh, recently, which all go back to a lot of the issues that were talked about at the Leveson inquiry, but I do not think were adequately uh, dealt with, which relate to the fact that the press in this country still exists within its own little bubble. It still is not accountable to the people. It's not accountable to its victims, and it can choose when and in what terms it will comply with the code of conduct that all members of the press say that they will abide by. Brian, you were involved in the Leveson inquiry, weren't you? I was. I um, hacked off, launched to demand a a public inquiry into what was uh, going wrong in the press. Um, And uh, Leveson was that inquiry. I'm not suggesting that we were the sole agents of its happening. But uh, you know, we were we were demanding an inquiry at the time, and uh, I I gave evidence to the inquiry um, and and submitted and so forth, and also hacked off, facilitated um, and helped other people uh, giving evidence. So yes, we were very closely involved. 
And do you see any significant change in the practices of the British tabloids post Leveson, um, as opposed to uh, the issues that, that yourself and those that you helped to give evidence were raising? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, a simple point. Um, and that's not because of Levison. It's not his fault. It is the responsibility of the governments of uh, David Cameron and of Theresa May. They pulled the plugs out uh, that um, Levison said needed to be pushed in. So uh, the, 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 the motors for change that he suggested uh, were simply turned off. And uh, they, this was because of the influence of the press, uh, the corporate press, on this particular, on the Conservative Party and on, on these, these governments. Um, uh, they were very happy uh, to oblige their, their press friends uh, by, for example, cancelling uh, part two of the Levison Inquiry, which was going to look at criminality, and would, I think, have brought wholesale changes to the way in which these big companies operate. Uh, and they were um, happy to uh, shelve what's called Section 40 of the Crime and Courts Act, which was kind of the ignition key uh, for the, um, uh, the, 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 the measures Leveson intended to push newspapers towards participation in meaningful, uh, independent, effective press regulation. Paul, you've spoken on the newscast quite recently to Colette about Section 40, haven't you? Uh, I have indeed. I feel very strongly about Section 40. I believe that it should be implemented uh, in full, and I find it far too convenient for the press uh, and those sympathetic for the press to say that it is an anti-press measure. So I agree entirely with that. Section 40 is, is a kind of strange beast. It's it's a uh, it's a device, a clever device conceived by uh, Sir Brian Leveson, um, but it, it it was also a key to um, uh, great benefits, not just for the public but for journalists, um, and and that side of it has been completely hidden and obscured. It's it's not just a means of providing low cost access to justice for the public in cases of privacy and cases of uh, um, libel. But it's also a means of preventing the chilling of newspapers and journalists, by which I mean the uh, use of the tactics, for example, infamously employed by Robert Maxwell uh, to suppress uh, a press interest in his, in his iniquities, um, bullying uh, threatening legal actions all the time, harass, legal harassment of, of journalists, those kinds of things can be blocked by Section 40. That was always obscured. Um, and I'm a journalist. I wanted to see that change happen because I wanted to see freer investigative journalism. But yeah. we never heard that discussed. No, we didn't. And, and also, I think the press has been um, too quick. And, and by the press, in fact, I mean Ipso has been too quick to say that it is now compliant with the uh, major recommendations of the Leveson Inquiry. Um, and we've had a, a very disappointing independent review of Ipso's performance. The main problem is Ipso says it has powers to discipline its members 
for serious or systematic breaches of uh, its own code of conduct. But the reality is it's never going to use those measures. And we all know it's never going to use those measures because Ipso exists as a voluntary organisation. The very idea that it would start penalising people who are part of it just because of their own indulgent submission of their will is ludicrous. So just to clarify for anyone listening who's not familiar with the terminology, IPSO is the voluntary regulator to which most of the major tabloids in this country um, are signed up. Lord Leveson and his inquiry recommended a system of improved voluntary regulation as opposed to the Press Complaints Commission, which was the predecessor for IPSO, but stopped short of suggesting statutory regulation. And so IPSO, the new regulator, was established and signed up to by these various tabloids. Now, Paul, if I may, um, you've been um, speaking to the press yourselves, different press outlets, I hasten to add, in the uh, last week or so. And you've been talking um, about the coverage provided particularly by the the Sun, I think it was, um, of various aspects of Caroline Flack's life over the last few years and suggesting that they may well have been in breach of the Ipso code well before she took her own life. Yes. Could you just tell us what exactly you think puts them in breach of the code? Yeah, well, I was asked to comment on a specific story that had run uh, in The Sun, which related to uh, a telephone call that Caroline Flatt's boyfriend had made to uh, the emergency services in which he alleged that uh, she was attempting to take her own life. Uh, it's not clear from the report whether she was, in fact, attempting to do so or not. But the point was the very active reporting this in circumstances where there was not even the mere possibility of a public interest in the story uh, was a clear violation of um, the code in respect of privacy obligations, uh, obligations in respect of intrusion into shock or grief, uh, and potentially as well. Um, harassment provisions. I also found it troubling, uh, given that the press is also obliged to report uh, suicides uh, sensitively, um, that it would indulge in this kind of uh, reporting uh, in a way in which it sort of blindly talks about mental health and uh, suicide uh, without really engaging with the spirit uh, of that provision. So, and my question for both of you is, is the Ipso Code any improvement on the Press Complaint Commission's code? Is, the, is Ipso any improvement as a regulator on the Press Complaints Commission? Well, I would say on the answer to those uh, questions in both cases is no. Um, the, the code is, has barely changed. Um, it's been tinkered with in very small ways. But there was no kind of fundamental reassessment of the 
of the nature of the code or, or of its of its approach. Um, the same people were responsible for instituting the transferring the same code to um, uh, to Ipso and then uh, supposedly updating it. But it, as I say, they, they tinkered with a few words. That's all. Um, in terms of Ipso as a as a regulator, it is essentially the Press Complaints Commission. Um, <laughs> It, it, it has, there have been changes, again, tinkering around the edges. The, the paperwork is different. There is a, a, a contractual element to it with the papers. Uh, but the, um, the essential character of the, of the regulator is, is the same. It's not a, really a regulator at all, as, 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 as Levison said. One of, I mean, there are several tests of this. One is that when the paperwork for um, Ipso was put before Leveson, and it was essentially that, uh, by Lord Black and Lord Hunt during the inquiry, he said that it fell far short of what was required to provide adequate protection for the public from press abuses. They went ahead with that. In fact, in some respects, they watered down the documentation they'd shown him. Um, uh, it has also been assessed... Uh, by the academic uh, Dr. Gordon Ramsay in ex you know, a great detail, the paperwork uh, underpinning. Um, and, and he says basically something like half the essential criteria for an independent effective regulation, regulator are not met. But the ultimate test for these things is that Leveson said there should be a kind of MOT test for press regulators. It's not for the press to say whether a press regulator is independent and effective. It's not certainly for government ministers to make that judgment. He recommended appointing a body the, which came into existence, the Press Recognition Panel, which is itself entirely independent uh, to make these judgments. Do, do, does any press regulator meet the standards that he suggested were essential? Ipso has never even been submitted to the press recognition panel uh, for assessment because they know it would fail. The press recognition panel itself has independently and informally assessed the status of Ipso and says it would fail. So we are in a position where it's absolutely beyond dispute that Ipso is nothing like a Leveson standard press regulator. Mm. Yeah, I would, I would endorse that. I would add as well that... Um... With the with the code, of course, the the test of the code is not just the wording of the code itself. It's also in the way that it's applied, and one of the difficulties uh, has been the absolute lack of transparency transparency in determining how uh, Ipso makes its decisions. So, for example, Ipso gives us a set of statistics that tells us how many applications has been uh, have been received, but there's no transparency on uh, the decisions it's making to dismiss complaints. So it tells us that so many complaints are dismissed because they don't fit the code or there's nothing uh, to, uh, no case to answer as far as they're concerned. Well, we don't know what the circumstances behind that are. We just simply have to trust that Ipso is making uh, sensible decisions uh, on this. Um, but also, even in terms of the cases themselves, the adjudicatory process, although Ipso will provide us with a sort of adjudicatory reports as such that, that sort of give an indication of the legal reasoning or the quasi-legal reasoning in these cases, we can't really assess 
them on any sort of transparent um, basis. No, indeed, they 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 kind of slam the door. Um, I conducted with with uh, uh, another elderly journalist, um, Paddy French. Um, we we looked in great detail at the infamous story published by the Times about the um, so-called Christian child forced into Muslim foster care. Um, and and um, we essentially found that it, it you know this this report, which has been found to be false in almost every respect, was the result of extremely shoddy, extremely bad journalism. Uh, we did that. A BBC programme absolutely independently, a BBC Radio 4 documentary, looked at, the, at that report and came to exactly the same conclusions. But Ipso has never, and, and Ipso, which received and dismissed 250 complaints about the, that story, has never even made any judgment whatsoever, never even investigated, never done, never lifted a finger about this story, which, you know, the, the public interest in, in getting that right uh, mm-hmm. seems to me essential. This fed into lots of very ugly far-right um, uh, uh, material about, about um, mm-hmm. Muslims in this country in, a, in an extremely hostile way. It was a false story, and uh, it should have been corrected. It never has been. Is there a problem with standing um, with complaints for, to Ipsa? I mean, who is eligible to make a complaint on a basis of factual inaccuracy to Ipso? Can anyone make a complaint, or is it only the subject of the story? Um, well, what they said in the case of, in that case I've just described, uh, the, the Christian child forced into Muslim foster care. Um, was that they didn't have uh, a complaint from anybody who was sufficiently informed about the issue. So that means, you know, that ordinary members of the public, they don't want to hear from them. Yeah, you know, if, if you're offended by a story you, you can see is, is, is wrong, um, you know, it does, it does no good to complain because you can't provide the evidence. Certainly, Ipso is not going to investigate simply because a lot of people complain to it that this story stinks. That's never going to happen. Um, uh, in, uh, uh, I mean, there are categories of complaint uh, where um, essentially Ipso cherry picks. Um, the, uh, in, in discrimination, you have to be the person discriminated against. It's as simple as that. If you're the individual, if, you, if you're not that person, they don't care. So let's, I mean, we've talked a bit about the obvious impact that this uh, culture has on celebrities who are uh, vociferously attacked by the tabloids. And that has been a culture in this country for a very long time. We build them up and we take them down. Um, But what I think really brings home the post-Laverson landscape is the impact on ordinary members of the public of press intrusion. And Brian, you've recently highlighted one such case, which is the case of Danielle Hinley, um, who uh, had her own business and ended up being libeled by the Mail on Sunday um, after she was accused by them of being a a, a cowboy cosmetic surgeon. Um, Could you tell us a bit about how 
the regulator has has failed there um, in respect of her issues. I, I mean, it's a it's a very shocking case, and as you say, the the striking thing about it is that this is not somebody who's famous who did anything to provoke uh, the attention of the of the national press or of the public in any way. She was a hardworking single mother. Uh, in in uh, Kipax outside Leeds, she's a beautician. Uh, she had a business, um, and uh, it was it was pretty successful. in In 2017, it was successful. Um, then the Mail on Sunday came along, and adopted a complaint that was made about uh, her, Hindley's work uh, that was knocking around on Facebook, uh, and and repeated it as if it were fact. In fact. Hindley had spent weeks and weeks fighting this complaint, um, which was taken to every conceivable body in her business, um, and and demonstrating that it was completely unfounded. Uh, the the woman making this complaint uh, had no grounds uh, to uh, complain. She had, in fact, she'd had a, a a procedure, which had some side effects. She had uh, received a full briefing on the on the the risk of these side effects. She had signed a waiver saying she understood these side effects might were, were indeed likely to occur. They were short term, and indeed they were. Um, she had a picture of herself taken while she was having these side effects, and this was reproduced um, in the Mail on Sunday. Uh, the Mail on Sunday also um, sent a reporter undercover into uh, Danielle Hindley's home where she operates her business um, and uh, spent more than an hour there trying to to kind of trick her into saying stupid things and 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 revealing herself as this cow, cowboy cosmetic um, 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 what was it, a rogue practitioner that um, uh, and of course she never did uh, so there was an element of intrusion as well um, and and then Daniel Hindley you know realized that this undercover thing was was a fake she tracked down the the the, the journalist she called the paper she emailed the paper to say. Uh, you realize that the woman who's making this complaint against me, this is unfounded. I can show you, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, tests of her evidence. I can show you, I can prove to you that, the, that this, is a, this is a dud complaint. Um, and I can also show you all the other five-star reviews I have to show I'm good at my work and fully qualified. Um, the, the Mail on Sunday didn't want to hear that. They published anyway. They had a thing about these cosmetic cowboys um, across two pages, and Daniel Hindley was case number one. Uh, the effect on her was devastating. She had a, a raft of cancellations immediately. She was the subject of extremely unpleasant online trolling. She was the um, uh, she she, she became aware of the kind of whispers in the pubs and hairdressers around around about in 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 other beautician salons and things like that. That she was a she was a fake and a fraud. Um, it, it was extremely unpleasant for her. Her business more or less collapsed. Her health collapsed. She came to the brink of suicide. And this is a woman with a young son. Her son, who was being bullied in school, was helping to care for her because she simply took to her bed. She was unable to cope. And this went on for months and months. Um, and uh, she complained to Ipso in the middle of all this. Somehow she managed to get her case to Ipso. Ipso, and I'd say this to their credit, at one stage became so concerned about her, a caseworker became so concerned, that they sent 
uh, sent her the details for, for the Samaritans. But at the end of it, they upheld the complaint that the story was inaccurate because, of course, it was obviously inaccurate. They rejected uh, Hindley's complaint that the um, story had that the intrusion in her home had been unjustified. They said they they found that the Mail on Sunday, on the basis of this dud evidence, was justified in sending an undercover reporter with a camera into what was her home and filming, among other things, a visiting friend and her child. Uh, I mean, you know, her living quarters in her home, uh, it was, uh, they found that was justified. But where, I mean, where they fell down most radically, I think, was, first of all, the correction they ordered the mail on Sunday to print, to publish, was as weak in, in terms of, you know, wording as you could possibly imagine. Secondly. When the Mail on Sunday was due to publish it on page two, as instructed by Ipso, the, the day before, the Saturday, uh, Mail on Sunday rang Ipso and said, look, we've got a big story running across our few pages. Would it be okay if we stuck this on page eight? And without consulting Daniel Hindley, without seeking her opinion on this issue, Ipso said yes. So the next morning, Daniel Hindley who's been told the correction will be on page two, opens the paper and can't find it. Uh, and, you know, she knows that at page eight, it's, it's buried, it's lost. There's no meaningful vindication for her in a few weasel words published at the bottom of page eight. Nothing. So it was a, it was a chronic, shocking failure by episode uh, of a kind, I'm afraid, that is not that unusual. We should say that um, the story has at least something of a happy ending in that um, the claimant has succeeded after uh, a great deal of time and, uh, and effort that's been spent, um, succeeded in a libel claim against the publishers of the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday Associated Newspapers um, who are uh, paying her damages as a result. But what I think this brings us to is the necessary discussion of what has to happen next. Mm. If you're both broadly agreed that Ipso has not provided uh, the kind of reform that was needed post-Leveson, um, what would? Well, for, for me, it is... Uh... The only thing that can be done and should be done is compulsory press regulation, which would compel uh, members of the press to belong to an approved uh, regulator. And there would be a power of appeal against initial decisions uh, done by that regulator. And that regulator would have the power to issue compensation inappropriate cases. Um, now, this uh, some of these issues were at least initially discussed by Leveson, but I think he was too quick to agree uh, with commentators, with those affected who said that this would be uh, an unjustifiable interference with freedom of press and would represent 
a breach of uh, the UK's obligations under the European Convention on Human Rights, specifically Article 10 itself, which provides freedom of expression. The frustration for me is that Leveson had in his hands the proof that such claims were unfounded, and that proof was a report, a detailed report by Lara Fielden, who had con- conducted extensive comparative research on the press regulatory systems operating in, for example, Denmark, but also Ireland. Denmark has a compulsory scheme of press regulation, which all members of the press are obliged to join. They join automatically. They have no say in the matter. It just happens. Ireland has a system of appeal by which individuals can appeal against a decision by the the ombudsman. Um, and so there is accountability that way. The only novel aspect of my system, which I'm uh, advocating, is this idea of paying compensation, uh, which for me would replace the idea of paying fines. But I think that's entirely defensible, given that the people who suffer as a direct result of these interferences, these breaches of the code of conduct, it's not the state, and it's normally the state that's said to suffer where someone's ordered to pay a fine. It's the individuals themselves, it's the victims, and it's those victims who should be compensated. Brian, yeah. what do you think of Paul's plan? Well, I, I, I can't I broadly agree the the principle of something uh, mandatory. Um and I'm I'm, as I say, very attached to the outcome of the Levis inquiry, not for some kind of sentimental reason, but because it had overwhelming legitimacy. So this was a public inquiry led by a very, very senior judge, um, who, uh, which, which was established by cross-party agreement in Parliament. That's to say the three biggest parties, opposition included, got together and 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 backed this thing it's that was seemed to me very important at the time and it's um the and the, all the leading politicians involved recognized it that it's not for politicians to to um take a lead in these issues uh unless the moment comes when they have to to protect citizens so they had to act they had to set up an inquiry but they also had to get um the views are the independent views of a, a senior judge who, uh, in an exemplary fashion, in a fan- wonderfully open and transparent process over a year, um, uh, brought out, heard the evidence of every relevant party. So I, I think the, the kind of, and, and produced a, a monumental report. Now, I think that the, 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 the legitimacy of that and the outcomes of it, which were um, agreed on a cross-party basis, over the following six months or so, um, I think you know we we can't kind of um, recoil from that. Now, I would say Leveson made these recommend all these recommendations. He said if it's not working, it has to go back to Parliament, and I think that's right. Mm. Um, and I think that you know I think as as Paul does that the moment has come for something mandatory. Um, I I I think that the example of Denmark, for example, is extremely telling. Not just because it has a compulsory. Um, uh, uh, regulatory system, but also because it's it's number one, two, or three every year in the Press Freedom Index. 
Um, it, it, you know, it's it's demonstrable that having that system has not killed press freedom in Denmark. People would laugh at that idea. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I I think the time has come. So, for me, the challenge here is, uh, you know, can it not be cross party? And and I think the problem here is is the conduct of the Conservative Party, which has been utterly shameless over the past. Um, uh, since since 2015, I suppose, since mm-hmm. they were re- elected on their own without the Liberal Democrat coalition um, in, in 2015, they have behaved in a shameless way, essentially sucking up to and obliging their friends in the corporate press at every turn. So sabotaging all the Leveson outcomes, um, doing their best to kill off um, uh, no-win, no-fee f- arrangements, uh, all around us, looking at ways in which they can they can help the press. Uh, one small instance for for me, and I'd be very interested in Paul's view on this, is in the Caroline Flack affair. She was charged in the middle of December, and the Sun alone published forty stories between that point and her death. Now, I, as a journalist, was trained that once there have been charges you had basically only the right to report name, rank, and serial number. Why is it that, that the Attorney General, and this is, a, this is an offence in which any prosecution has to be instigated by the Attorney General, who, as we know, is a government MP, um, why is it that the Attorney General has not acted against any newspaper in this case? This seems to me to be, put it this way, open to questions about corruption. And I think uh, this kind of conduct, this kind of shamelessness in in the Conservative Party is what forces me to acknowledge that that the idea that there has to be cross-party consensus uh, won't work. Uh, The Conservative Party has put itself beyond the pale in these issues by its its closeness to and its its corrupt relationship with uh, the Mm. corporate press. So... I think that as soon as you have a government in which the Conservatives are not a majority, um, we should be we should be looking for um, compulsory uh, change, and we should be looking for compulsory regulation of the press to the standards that Leveson um, uh, recommended. Just for clarification for listeners, what uh, Brian's talking about when he mentions the Attorney General there is the possibility of bringing. Uh, a, a charge of contempt of court under the Contempt of Court Act against uh, the newspapers running stories about Caroline Flack after she'd been charged with a criminal offence on the basis that running those stories might constitute a serious uh, impediment to uh, justice um, uh, in those criminal proceedings. Um, and that is something, of course, that, that the uh, well, of course, we have a new attorney general now. So the former attorney general, uh, the then attorney general, would have to um, uh, speak to uh, uh, himself in terms of his decision not to uh, bring those charges. Um, perhaps I, I could finish by um, just bringing up uh, what I'm sure some members of the press would have to say about these proposals. You, you've both dealt preemptively with the is this a threat to press freedom question um, by, uh, amongst other things, pointing to the, the, the Danish model. So perhaps I could put the, the issue a little differently, which is to say, if 
what we're really getting at here is a, a, an issue of accountability and whether the tabloid press are sufficiently accountable. Might it be plausibly said that the true measure of accountability, uh, at least in a capitalist society such as ours, is the accountability provided by the market? If people didn't want to read this stuff, if people thought it was so abhorrent, then they wouldn't keep buying it. And I can see a free market style argument. I mean, you'll both be familiar with the free market justifications for freedom of expression. Might a defense be offered of the current practice along those lines? And how would you respond to it? Well, I, I, this is something that I deal with in my um, book. Um, oh, tell uh, us about your book, Paul. <laughs> doesn't really feel appropriate, but okay, since you asked. Um I have a book coming out uh, shortly. It's published by Hart. It's called A Free and Regulated Press. And essentially, this is the uh, vehicle by which I set out the case as I see it for uh, compulsory press regulation. Um, the um, free market argument is, of course, um, entirely plausible. It's one of several arguments that are put forward for um, press freedom. Um, I think the point, though, is that the, the free market argument plays most significantly and sensibly to the discussion of issues, to discussion of the kind of issues that we as a society think need to be dealt with uh, through governments or else by uh, individual senses of morality. Uh, We're not talking about issues. And uh, a press regulatory scheme of the kind that I have in mind wouldn't have the power to tackle newspapers over the way that they present issues. So the fact that we have a preponderance of right-wing-leaning newspapers is, as you say, Tom, entirely a matter for the market, entirely a matter for readers. What I'm talking about is the protection of people. I'm talking about the circumstances in which newspapers prioritise the reporting of people over issues. And I'm talking about the protection of those people when they become victims, as far too often they do. Now, that for me is not a threat to press freedom because I'm talking about the enforcement of pre-existing codes of conduct which the press themselves have come up with and the press themselves endorse. The wording of the Ipso Code, I think, as we said earlier, can be tinkered with, but it's broadly equivalent to all the other codes of conduct which exist in Ireland and in mainland Europe, from Denmark down to Switzerland and from the Netherlands across to Slovakia. So what I would like to see and what I'm not clear on is why a mandatory scheme which enforces the rules that the press themselves have come up with is somehow a threat to press freedom. Brian, do you want to add anything? Yes, I'm. I, I'm. I'm with you there. I think. Um, I think it. You know, it's worth bearing in mind a line from the from the Leveson report in which he said, "There's no question of anybody being prevented." by a regulator from publishing anything they like. The question is, should they face consequences if, the, if this is a breach of the code? 
and and you know effective independent assessment of 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 whether it's a breach of the code um and the code you know at the code that we have is is kind of i mean there are lots of things i would change about it but but i i agree with paul that it's a, it's a workable start i think um like paul i think about individuals so i've written about um uh victims often often people not in the public eye who have uh, who have suffered for example christopher jeffries the man who was mm. the bristol teacher who was monstered by the papers accused of a murder he didn't commit and that somebody else subsequently can confessed to um th- these cases are of real people who are treated as trash by national newspapers they are treated with no respect whatsoever now if they will not respect them in their marketplace of 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 news if they will not respect these people how can we protect them other than by some form of effective independent regulation and if the press will not accept that voluntarily it has to be imposed on there has to be a way of protecting people like danielle hindley and people like christopher jeffries and indeed people like caroline flack and ben stokes and gareth thomas and indeed uh, the the duchess of sussex there has to be have to be ways of protecting these people from abusive journalism from dishonest journalism from lies and discrimination and bullying um there, there have to be means of doing this because we live in a society which does not stand by and watch people suffer needlessly suffer without justification so you know if i i can't understand how these journalists who do these things um sleep at night how they look their families in the eye i really don't but mm. if they are prepared to carry on like this then it falls to government falls to the people we elect to represent us and to protect us to to act and that has to happen sooner or later um it it really does we have seen far too many of these instances of innocent people and i think perhaps in 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 the present context the grossest abuses are committed against muslims in the uk uh the the, the level of discriminatory writing the the idea that from some kind of um right of free expression you can you 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 thereby have the right to to cause harm to people without any consequence and hate crime is steeply on the rise the, that idea it seems to me to be totally unacceptable something has to be done well gentlemen we are out of time today but um thank you both very much for uh, for joining me a pleasure thanks tom